The beast is real, and it stirs in the deep like a hungry nightmare, desiring to master the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And the beast grows as long as the light is concealed, and therefore we must be a people of the light. And in our modern moment, in this time we are in right now, it is certainly true that we are in spiritual warfare and much work is being done to restrain the light. But we can have revival if we simply be people of the light who are motivated to serve our Lord Christ Jesus. Today, as we pick up in Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he faced the darkness when the prophets that were around him, those within his own house, they conspired against him and tried to deceive him with fake prophecies, with Trojan horse morality, if you will. And we must be fortified in our souls and learn from Nehemiah's example of how powerful it is to stand up to the darkness. So as we begin today, we're going to be jumping off in Nehemiah chapter 6, and I had hoped originally to get through 6 and 7 today, but we're only going to be going through the very end, the very tail end of Nehemiah chapter 6, but that's all right. So let's open up in prayer, shall we? And we're going to be talking about the light and the beast. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we are assembled together, Lord, I pray that you come, open up our hearts and minds to receive your wisdom, strength, and encouragement. Lord, give us great fortification of our souls, Lord. Let us have a firm backbone. Let us have eyes and ears that see clearly where we are not asleep to the, the truths which you have us in life to see. Lord, let us instead look to you. Let us have great joy in life. Lord, for all those who listen to this, Lord, I pray that you would give them good health. Give us peace. Let us have great joy as we interact with one another and let us move towards you in all that we do. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, without any further hesitation, let's jump right into our scripture today. And we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 10 through 19. So, the very tail end of this chapter. And what we find is the great climax in those who want to conspire and kill Nehemiah. They have plotted, they have done a great many things, and there is a series of escalation that happens here. And it's quite fascinating when you ultimately see their, their great climax is to infect Nehemiah's own house there within Jerusalem with false prophets. And that really is a fascinating thing. Let's jump right into this and see what happens. Nehemiah 6.10 reads, One day, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his house, he said, let us come and meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close its doors of the temple so that those who are coming for you, you will be hidden. Indeed, they are coming this very night, coming to kill you. But then I said, should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived and saw that God had not sent him at all, but he had been pronouncing this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. And he was hired for this purpose, to intimidate me and to make me sin by acting in this shameful way, and so that they would be able to give me a bad name in order that they might taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O oh my God, according to these things that they have done, and also that prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so, we finished the wall, and on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days, we completed. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us, they were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem. For they had perceived that our God had been with us, that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah, they sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, son of Ara, and his son Jehoiannan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berkiah. 
And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So as we find in this chapter, Nehemiah, he reaches the climactic moment where they, they finish the work of the wall. But it doesn't happen without its challenges. Of course, Sambalot and Tobiah, they try to kill Nehemiah. And it is fascinating to see how all of this comes together. But there is an ultimate climax of their, their evil against Nehemiah where they send false prophets to try to corrupt him. And now this really is a fascinating thing, and we're going to examine that today. And we're going to take things in the direction of, once again, going to the book of Revelation. And I want us to, to begin our examination today by recognizing that the beast is real. It truly does stir in the deep like a hungry nightmare, desiring to master all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. The beast, it grows when the light is concealed, and therefore we must be people of the light. Just as Nehemiah, he was a man of the light. He stood up to the darkness, even when the prophets around him, those, and as you learn there in the end, Tobiah, he had worked his web. He was even interrelated with many of them. Whenever your own house, those near you, they conspire against you, you must be someone of the light all the more. There will be those who come. They try to deceive you. They'll have fake prophecies. They'll have Trojan horse morality, and that's a very important concept for us to, to fixate on. Trojan horse morality are things that sound good. They appear to be quite convincing. And you can make a sound argument that they are convincing, but even a sound argument that is detached from God is ultimately going to lead to destruction. And as we learn from Nehemiah, we do see a powerful example of how to stand up to darkness. And there really is much to be said about the sequence of events which happens in chapter 6 and the escalation of attacks against Nehemiah. Now, last week in our sermon titled, A Time to Stand Firm, we looked at the, the first two attacks, and we kind of hinted there at this third one involving prophets, but there is a series of escalation that happens here, and you must understand it is an escalation. They're not just random events. They each increase in degree, and they climax an attack that, if it were successful, it would have been worse than death. You know, they conspire to ruin Nehemiah's name that he may sin and be separated from God. And when Sambalot and Tobiah, they failed to destroy his body and work, this is the direction that they went. Their third and final climax in the sequence is to conspire to corrupt his soul. And so just examining this for a moment, first we saw that Nehemiah's enemies, they tried to convince him to come down from the wall. They tried to get him to come down from his work and to negotiate with them there in the regions below. Evil will often do this. He'll just outright invite you. Say, come over, let's, let's coexist with one another and let's talk. Well, in truth, they wanted to destroy him, but Nehemiah saw through that, so he never came. Well, after things went along for a while, when this tactic failed, these terrible foes, they escalated their schemes in hopes that Nehemiah wouldn't call their bluff. So what did they do? Well, their second attempt was to employ two chief tactics, two chief doctrines of Satan himself, and that they make dishonest accusations and they bear false witness using partial truths. And what they do is they say, Nehemiah, we see that you are plotting war against King Artaxerxes, so therefore come down here and we'll talk about it. Or we're going to tell King Artaxerxes that you are plotting war against him and we will have you destroyed that way. So kind of raise the stakes with these absolutely serious accusations. And when we understand just how serious they are, there are something that many would be tempted to answer for because you don't want to be accused of this level of insurrection. But even this fails because Nehemiah, he doesn't negotiate with them. He sees through it. He says, nope, you're liars. You're making this stuff out of your head. And then they come into their third wave of attack. It was clear, despite what came out of their mouths, that they wanted to kill Nehemiah. And when all of that failed, they, they put together a third wave of attack. 
And this is so, so fascinating because this happens in our own lives and happens in our nations. It happens in a personal level and also on a larger level. The third and climactic attempt against Nehemiah in chapter 6 of his memoir is fascinating in that Sanballat and Tobiah hired false prophets inside the house of Israel to tell Nehemiah a lie. And a lie that would have him corrupt himself if he fell for it. They conspired to attack Nehemiah in a way that would make it use of his strong faith. And evil will often do this. It will do something that if your faith is shallow, it will, well, ruin you. And if Nehemiah, had he been living out a shallow faith or a superficial faith, and by that I mean one that appeared to be strong and genuine on the outside, but actually was hollow in his heart, then he could have easily been tricked into this. A false version of the light was used against him. A trick meant to ensnare people who lack a fortified faith. And we're going to be talking about that more today, a false version of the light. You know, often we imagine that evil, that the greater the evil is, the more it might be apparently ugly. But that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, Scripture tells us a very different story. You know, we typically think of evil in something like Linda Blair there in The Exorcist, where you've got the head spinning around, things like that that are just absolutely repulsive to look at. But in truth, when we look at the the Holy Scriptures and when we consider evil itself, oftentimes it may be something which is a bit more sinister and concealed. You look in the the Steven Spielberg movie, The Poltergeist, and there's the little girl who gets taken into the to the terrible domain of the spirits. And when the medium comes in there to to really try to get the girl out, she speaks with the family and she says, "There is one with the child. There is one in there who is greatly evil." And he whispers to her as if. He is another child. He tells her sweet things that only a child can understand. And to her, she thinks he is another child. But this is the great beast himself. You know, evil, when it is peak evil, it masks itself as innocence. And we do well to consider this. A false version of the light was used to attack Nehemiah. And it's a trick that is very effective in ensnaring people who lack a fortified faith. And we ourselves, we do well to consider that lying prophets are the most vicious attack and the most powerful attack against Nehemiah in chapter 6 of his memoir. It truly is fascinating that the ultimate line that comes against this man is in this form. And we must recognize that if it had been successful, it would have done more damage than just killing him. If he had just simply been assassinated, well, his revival would have still had the inertia. He would have been a martyr. People would have continued. But had he been spiritually compromised, had he got corrupted in this way, had he been made to sin against God and to separate himself from God, then he would have done something much worse. His ministry, it would have been very fractured. His, the very inertia of his ministry, that energy which had been carried with him, it would have been erased. People would have lost their hope. And even though Nehemiah himself is not the, the author of life, he is not God, he is the inspirational figure which has brought people to God. He's a very important prophet in this. And had he gotten corrupted, well, then a lot of people, it would have been very damaging on a very practical level. And what we found is that those who were meant to be the voices of light and truth, they were corrupted to do the biddings of darkness. And they constructed a message that was foolproof. They really had. And we find that people do this in our own world. They construct messages, they construct tactics which are indeed foolproof. But Nehemiah was no fool. And the fake prophecy itself is worth our time investigating. We really should spend a few moments investigating what it is like for for this fake prophecy to happen. Because the mechanics of it and some of the the inner workings, the details of it, are quite remarkable in their similarity to, to our world right now. 
And what we find is the prophet Shemaiah comes to Nehemiah and he says, Ah, Nehemiah, come let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, they are coming this very night in order to kill you. And now if we just take a, a moment to dissect this, we will see just how sinister this is. Because it's, it's very fascinating that the lie is so deeply wrapped in truth that for many they would have never seen past this. You know, we, we live in a day and age where critical thinking has almost been entirely eviscerated from our world. And critical thinking enough is not enough to hold this accountable. You've got to have eyes set on God. You know, if, if people looked at this and you have a shallow faith, you would look at this prophecy and you would say, okay, well, you know, it's true that there are people that want to kill Nehemiah. In fact, Sambalot and Tobiah, this whole chapter, they've basically been trying to kill Nehemiah. And it's even true that they want to kill him this night. And if they had an opportunity to kill him on this night, they would. It's also true that Sambalot and Tobiah, they wouldn't be allowed to enter the temple. It wouldn't be easy for them to get in there. So the temple would be a logically good place for one to hide. Once again, we can find that it's also true to turn to God when one is dealing with serious problems. And one could make the case that going to the temple is a way of turning to God. So all of this, it sounds good. This prophecy, it sounds very sound, right? And it's even coming from a prophet within Jerusalem. So where is the lie in this text? Where is it? We look at these words, you run it through the fact checkers, it checks out. This is a good prophecy. Well, where is the lie then? Well, the lie was in absolutely every word. Because it's words, they were motivated by wickedness to take Nehemiah to a place of ultimate destruction. And it's difficult to think about this. It, it really is quite mind-boggling to see how all of these words appear to be true. You can make a convincing argument that they're true. And they're, they're, they're rooted in things that are true and absolutely true. But yet, they're motivated by wickedness. And if Nehemiah followed through with them, they would take him to a wicked place of ultimate destruction. And it would be shameful for Nehemiah to hide from his enemies. It would be sinful for him to abuse the temple of God in this way. And we can learn to see clearly through the world by examining what happens here. The motivations and fruits of those who bring this prophecy... It is something which we have to consider. Just like in our own modern world, people who bring us news, those who have that, that voice coming to announce things, we have to examine their motivations and fruits. Where are they wanting to take us? Those who ask us to change the course of our life. Nehemiah, he seeks clearly because he is motivated to serve God, and he's not motivated to serve the words and narratives of his enemies. Or even those who within his own house come to, to prophesy him. He's not motivated to serve their narratives. He doesn't, he doesn't care. And we find that the antidote really to this is to be motivated to serve God and to be thinking, what actually takes me in service of God? Because what we find happening here in this text is that for Nehemiah to do this, it's shameful, it's cowardly. The virtues of God, they might ask us to humble ourselves, but they never ask us to do anything shameful or cowardly. They won't. The great and noble virtues of God are just that. They're great and noble. They do not ask us to do dishonorable things. And therefore, if someone says, well, you must do something dishonorable in order to to, to move towards something good, well, then it is a lie. It is not truly the light. It is darkness masquerading as light. And then when you look at the, the also the mechanisms of this, this is something which is very self-serving for Nehemiah to do. You know, God, he calls us to, to love him first and then our, our neighbors. But Nehemiah, when he looks at this through that lens, he finds that this is truly something destructive. It has masked itself very well, but yet its mechanics, they are extraordinarily diabolical. And now I want us to change gears a little bit. I want us to, to consider Nehemiah through the lenses of the book of Revelation, particularly at Revelation 11, verses 1 through 7. To really understand these conspiring prophets against Nehemiah, 
we must see that Nehemiah is not unlike the, the two prophets in Revelation. And again, this is where we get things a little fascinating. Nehemiah is like the prophets in Revelation 11, and the lying prophets in Nehemiah 6, they're like the beast there in Revelation 11. Nehemiah, he's not unlike the two prophets, those coming to, to witness for, for God in Revelation 11, and that his mission is to do great works for God, albeit he does them in a less mysterious and much more practical manner. Moreover, the false prophets that we find in Nehemiah chapter 6, they are not unlike the beast itself, which has a powerful desire for destruction that is unconstrained by time. The beast comes, it grows, growing as it emerges from the deep, coming to kill and conquer the holy prophets of God. And I want us to go now to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And this is John. See, he comes to experience this. He says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come, come and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside of the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, wearing sackcloth. For these two they are the olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, there will be fire that pours out from their mouths and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit, will make war on them to conquer them and to kill them. We read this scripture. It's powerful imagery. And again, Nehemiah is not unlike these two prophets in that he does great works for God. Again, it's much less mysterious, much more practical, but he is still doing great works for God. And then there's the enemies. And in Nehemiah's case, they are prophets. They're false prophets. They're like the beast. The beast which comes up, it stirs from that bottomless pit coming up to make war against Nehemiah. And I can only imagine what it would be like for Nehemiah to look into the eyes of Shemaiah as he lied so perversely. Shemaiah's face must have been similar to the devilish face, which we're going to examine now, that C.S. Lewis describes in his book, The Paralandra. Lewis describes the face of a man possessed by the devil as being so terrible to behold that mere sight of, of it would be the final calamity itself. For mere sight of the devil is one of the greatest torments in hell, and to actually see him smile would destroy one's life and soul in an act of final calamity. Many of us may never take the words a devilish smile seriously, and especially since that colloquial term has fallen out of popularity in our modern language, but Lewis describes this devilish smile as follows, and it is so pertinent to our entire examination of these false prophets. And I want us to go now, I'm going to read an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, The Paralandra, as it looks at the smile of the devil himself. And just to give you some insight into the scene, this scene, it takes place on another world where there really are just four um, people there. It's, it's a recreation of the story of Adam and Eve in a new world of God's creation. And you have there in this garden, you have Adam, you have Eve, but then you also have the serpent. And the man that is the serpent in this scene, it is a man that Ransom used to know. And Ransom is the main character. He's the fourth one there at this scene. He had been brought here to this place that he might stop this evil from happening, that the fall might not happen on this new world. And as Ransom, the main character, he looks before this serpent character. He looks before this man he used to know. He sees that he's slightly disfigured. Something about him is off. And he looks at this man as he smiles with a devilish smile. 
And Lewis describes the scene saying, He had never before taken the world's the words seriously of a devilish smile. The smile was not bitter, nor raging, nor in any ordinary sense sinister. It was not even mocking. It seemed to summon with the horrible naivete of welcome. A welcome into the world of its own pleasures, as if all men were at one in those pleasures. As if they were the most natural thing in the world, and no dispute could have ever occurred about them. It was not furtive nor ashamed. It had nothing of the conspirator in it. It did not defy goodness. In fact, it ignored goodness to the point of an annihilation. And Ransom, he perceived that he had never before seen anything but half-hearted and uneasy attempts at evil. But this creature, this that stood before him, this was whole-hearted evil. The extremity of its evil had passed beyond all struggle into some state which bore a horrible similarity to innocence. No child would have any difficulty in understanding that there might be a face, that at the mere beholding of which was final calamity. The children, the poets, and the philosophers, they were all right. For there is one face above all worlds which is, in order for us to see it, it would give us irrevocable joy. To look upon the face of God in the heavens above the earth, it would give us irrevocable joy which none could take away. But so it is also true that at the bottom of all worlds there is a face in waiting. There is a face whose sight alone is misery from which none who beholds can ever recover. To see the smile of evil, of the beast, it is the final calamity. And that's something which is quite disturbing to think about. It really is. You know, to, to imagine such a terrible thing. And that this terrible thing, it doesn't even look mocking. It doesn't appear in an ordinary sense sinister. But it has a horrible naivete of welcome. And in all things strange, it doesn't even appear to, to want to defy goodness and all that is righteous and, and just. But instead it just ignores all things good to the point of annihilation. For something to be wholeheartedly evil it will bear a striking similarity to innocence. And Scripture shows that there's actually a lot of truth to what C.S. Lewis was writing. In fact, there's an extraordinary amount of truth to this. And it's quite disturbing. It takes you to a point where you almost either laugh or cry when you consider that there might be such a great and final calamity. And in our modern age, when we look at the world around us, there are many who like to act as if ancient evils, they're not at real. And there are many who will even enact ancient evils without the superstition of being evil. They believe that, you know, you can do great and terrible things without being superstitious about evil, and therefore they will not be evil. There are those who go out and they publicly pray to Satan as if there is no danger in playing with such things, as if there is no danger in mocking the very God who holds the breath of life. There are those who take pride in their covetousness, as if being covetous is a jealous, and being jealous of others, having that and turning that into your own righteousness, that that is somehow a new morality. You see this with things like socialism. There are those who want to seek to redefine and remake the world and what they desire to be true, as opposed to what actually is true. There are many who say they are doing charity while they are bearing so much false witness that it is almost unimaginable. Still, there are others who want to seek out. They want to resurrect murderous ideologies that they may once again wreak destruction throughout our earth. And these miserable souls, they tell themselves that all will be well and good. It will all be different this time around because we are the ones in charge and we have a sincere desire. We are pursuing innocence. We are going to create a utopia on this earth without suffering or judgments. 
But there's their cause. It is evil. And it is evil with this devilish smile that has a striking and stark similarity to innocence. But we cannot be deceived by it, for it is such a great evil. And we must realize that evil, it is fully real. And although it's not a part of the created order, it is a trespasser. A trespasser against logic and the laws of nature and nature's God, but nonetheless it is real. And the truth of evil is that it falls into a category of the uncreated, the unborn. It is an invasion of the meaningless void of unreasonable darkness that comes seeking to kill, steal, and destroy so much of God's noble creation that all may be reduced to something in horrible darkness. And it is important for us to recognize that evil is both real and conscious. However, it is also important to hold a proper expectation of evil in the fact that its consciousness does not exist in the same manner as does human consciousness or any other mode of existence designed by God. The beast itself, it is unborn, and it will grow stronger so long as it is concealed from the light. And returning now to Nehemiah, I want us to appreciate the great tenacity of Nehemiah's personal constitution and the power of light over the darkness. Unlike ourselves, who are graced by the invigorating gifts of both Christ's resurrection and the day of Pentecost, Nehemiah was a man who lived prior to such events. But yet he finds himself to be a man of God standing against a manifestation of the beast. And although he lacks the assuring knowledge of Christ's eternal victory, he is such a man of strong composition that he finds victory against the beast by seeking only to serve the light and truth of God. And now there is great merit to Lewis's assertion that the more holy evil something is, and holy with the W, something that is entirely evil, the more that is the case, the more it is going to have a similarity to innocence. You know, often we do imagine that evil, it looks more like the, the exorcist there spinning around, but the more wholeheartedly something is evil, the more it is going to be looking like sheep, the more it is going to look innocent, the more it is going to be deceptive. Its horrendous appearance is altogether different than anything we might imagine or that we might compare it to. And in fact, those who lack eyes of God, and I don't mean that they are God, but they have eyes that are transformed by God, eyes that have been fortified and transformed by God, those who lack such eyes, they will perceive it as innocence. Now, Nehemiah, he cast out the darkness of the beast by recognizing it as darkness. He does not see it as an alternative light. And the false prophets who betray Nehemiah, they desire to negotiate with them as if they are the light. And they make a case that sounds very true. And every word of it has been delicately masked. But we must not be deceived. They are not of the light, but instead they are a Trojan horse, an offering of the beast. We as people, we are hardwired to be spiritual and moral creatures, to think religiously. We value moral decisions or decisions that we consider moral and fulfilling more so than decisions that we perceive to be merely cold and calculating. Yet the sin nature, it has created a void, a void between our souls and that of God. There's a void between our naturally born selves and God, and there's gap. It is something which is quite terrible. There's a gap between being made in the image of God and being corrupted by sin. Now, it's also fascinating that creation simultaneously longs to be restored to God and lashes out against him. Evil likes to step into this gap. It likes to step in as a false light, offering people a dark light, if you will, because it knows that we desire for this void to be filled. The God-shaped hole, it is real, and evil is very content to fill it. In our world, it is littered with Trojan horse morality, fake and counterfeit virtues that want to be so integrated into your life, and, and nation as well, that they are perceived to be the true virtues of nature and nature's God. 
that they are natural to enact them. But this Trojan horse morality, it, while it may mask itself well, it is always evil, and it advances the forces of evil. And we must remember that like all forces of evil, the beast desires you. It desires you in order that it might consume you. And it knows that if it can convince you that it is the light, that you are likely to let it in, to allow it to coexist with you. And Luke warns us of this in his account of the gospel. And when we look to Luke chapter 11, verse 35, it says, Therefore, consider whether the light that is in you is not darkness. In that scripture, it tells us that there will be people who have light in them that they fully believe is light, but in fact it is darkness. And even when we go to Matthew's account, we look in chapter 6, verse 23, it says that if the light that is in you is darkness, how great then is the darkness? And what Matthew is reminding us is that if you believe that the light in you is light, but in fact it is darkness, then how great, how enormous, how all-consuming is that darkness for it to have tricked you with such a degree? You know, evil, it wants you to negotiate with it as if it is the light, but you must defeat it by recognizing it as the darkness. The true virtues of God, they are noble, but the Trojan horse virtues of the beast, they bring destructive chaos and they leave heaps of ash and death. And looking now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we are reminded that the God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers to negate the radiating illumination of the glory of the gospel of Christ Jesus, who is the very image of God. Evil, it consciously wants to instill unbelief, even among the faithful. Don't be conceived, or deceived, I should say, in reading this verse and say, oh, it's only after the unbelievers. No, no, no. The God of this age, that possessive spirit, it wants to create unbelief. And a fake creation, mind you. It wants to instill it, to destill our nation so that all the true virtues of God, they are weeded out. Yet the victory is ours, and the gospel of Christ Jesus radiates like a piercing lighthouse. Christ is present, and there is great peace in that truth. It's easy for us to be distracted in our world, but let us not forget the beast, it too, is real. And it stirs in the deep like a hungry nightmare, desiring to master the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. The beast, it grows, stirring, swelling, and it wants the light to be concealed, and therefore we must be people of the light. That is the antidote, to be people of the light. And for us to be people of revival, we must be people of the light. Revival is the only way that we can bring restoration to the world around us. We must be people who speak truth in a world that is utterly uninterested in truth. The beast, it likes to infect our world in such a manner that the darkness is not held accountable, where the light is not allowed to shine out in the public. And we are in such a moment right now, and the best tool for defeating this darkness is to simply shine the light on it. And we look back to Nehemiah, he shined the light. He was motivated by the light. And thus he was not fooled by the Trojan horse prophets, the Trojan horse morality that pretended to be in the light. He could see clearly. Moreover, he had such an impulse to act on what he's seen that he was able to withstand this great trial. He didn't mind saying no to anyone or calling out people for their lies, and we can learn a lot from that. In our modern culture, it truly is tailored so that only darkness can spread. This is a miserable thing. The light is held in restraint while the darkness is constantly excused. It is made narratives for the public voices. They refuse to speak truth on things. They bear fault witness and they, they give excuses and apologies for things which are actually darkness. They bear false witness and they call the light evil and they call the darkness good. And this itself is one of the, the greatest, greatest sins we have noted in Scripture. And I'm not one to, to rate out sins. But you look there in the New Testament, those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, those who conflate what is good and to be evil, that is, as Scripture defines it, the unforgivable. 
But let us not be discouraged. Let us not be discouraged because even a man like Nehemiah, who had neither the assurance of Christ's resurrection nor the sanctifying power that came with the Holy Spirit, he was able to cast out the darkness. And God does not demand that we have all the answers, but that we simply be motivated to love him and live by his light. The church is called to cast out the darkness, and this is something that we've been far too shy about. You know, Pastor Amanda, she often says, you know, always preach and if necessary use words. But one of the ways that we can preach to the world is to cast out the darkness. This is a great commission that we have been given, and it is part of the great commission. We've been commissioned with great power through our Lord Christ Jesus, who is the light. And let us not be discouraged by the great evils that assail against our world, for the victor is ours. We must have firm conviction with a firm backbone to be men and women who bring the radiating illumination of the gospel to the world around us. So as we close, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer and let us pray for strength to shine the light into the darkness. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And on that note, God love you, and have a blessed day.